That's what Chris hears when she wakes up. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the 2023 spooky season with Hacker Slash. If you're joining us again, welcome back. It's showtime. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the party. We are a horror movie review podcast dedicated to telling you whether a movie is a hack. A total joke. A waste of time. Or a slash. Totally killer. Pun intended. We believe horror is for everyone, and as such, we're rating these movies with the perspective we've gained from our varying walks of life and the flavors of fear we fancy most. My name is Chris, and I'm your friendly neighborhood slasher enthusiast. This week, I'm joined by the superfly space guy, Mac. Barb, honey, we're dead. I don't think we have very much to worry about anymore. The classic horror connoisseur, Sean. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. And the paranormal paramour, Binks. I, myself, am strange and unusual. This week, we're crossing into a world where the living haunt the dead, the bizarre is the norm, and saying a certain name three times can lead to chaos. Before we get down to business, though, we have some follow-up. Let's follow up on a season. All right. So around this time of year, we're usually getting a couple new listeners, right? They've gotten the itch. They want a little horror. They're just tuning into the show, maybe for the first time. So you might not know that we kind of make a big deal of the spooky season around these parts. Hmm. It's kind of a big deal. It's in Japan. It's a big deal. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So as this episode right now releases, we're kicking off the spooky season. And our theme for this year is The Voyage. Mm, Now you may be wondering why it's The Voyage. The reason why is because this year is a big one for us, right? So we have Friday the 13th of October that's coming up. This is the first one that has happened since we started the show in the very, very beginning in 2017. And that makes it a mega anniversary. And it's actually a lot bigger than even just the anniversary because hmm, we're going to be recording our 300th episode. So it's kind of like this journey of... Not only how the show has changed over time, how we have grown over time, but just the evolution as a community over 300 episodes is kind of fucking wild. Why does that make me want to cry? It is absolutely crazy. Uh, right? Why does it make you want to cry? Right? It is crazy. 300 episodes, Friday the 13th in October. I mean, what else can you ask for? It could not be any better, honestly. So here's what we're doing, right? We, we say that the theme is the voyage, but what does that look like? To honor that, we're actually looking back on six years of Hacker Slash by revisiting films that we covered in our early days. We're also going to be launching some new patron perks, and we're even extending the spooky season celebration to cover two months, September and October, instead of just October. So we're fucking going hard, folks. Yeah, I love it. As, as it should be. Spooky season, look... It deserves more than just two months. So we're giving it to you all. We, we really are. We're, we're serving up some double stuffed Oreos here. Okay. So we wanted to go, I think pretty big this year. And that means we need to find more ways to get you, dear listener, new episodes. So as we are looking back on all the films that we've covered in the past, I can't even believe it. We're doing nine weeks of rewinds. So we are revisiting some of our earliest films, like even the first movie that we ever, ever reviewed. Which was? Of course, the one and only It, Chapter One. 2017, baby. Oh, that was a good time. What a joyous time. Can't wait. You know how long ago that was? I used MoviePass to buy that ticket. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I bought Movie Pass, and I was like, I should probably start going to the movies more. 
I should probably do a podcast. There it is. Now here we are later with AMCA list. Oh my. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? An upgrade, some would say, and that some would be me. So what I love about these rewinds, though, is that they're actually going to be paired so beautifully with an episode that we're publishing on the main feed as well. So it's like a little coffee and dessert moment, you know, each one of them strategically plans. It speaks to my Virgo self. (laughs) So thoughtful. I can't wait for you all to realize, and really our patrons who are listening to this episode today, and you see which episode dropped on the Rewind today. It's for Binks' birthday. These two movies fucking go together so well. Uh, It's lovely. Let's put it that way. It is lovely. Not the match you'd expect, but the one you deserve. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put that. (laughs) Talking about the main feed, and... Not only are we double stuffing, like double stuffed Oreos, our lineup in October, we're doing two episodes a week. Friends, that means three episodes a week. So two in the main feed, one for our patrons. That's a total of 24 episodes for your listening pleasure. Putting in the work. Literally the most we've ever done. 24 episodes is usually, I mean, 52 weeks in a year. So whatever that fucking math is. We usually do 52 episodes in a year, and we're doing 24 just in two months because we love you. Wow. I expect everyone to listen until their ears bleed, though. You know, yeah. <laughs> all that all that work. Just If you're working from home and you don't have to be on a meeting, tune in. You know, hit up, fire up an episode. That's what's, that's what's up. That's right. This is also the third time that we've done our annual New Blood Drive, which, if you don't know, is a way to celebrate horror, our podcast anniversary, and the way that our family has grown, our Hacker Slash fam. So it's a couple things go into that. So one, community events. So last year was our first time doing a spooky season using our Discord server, which of course is a ton of fun. We had watch parties, live recordings, all of that. Absolute blast. So much fun. This year we're going to continue that, but we're, we're going to add a little spice. We're going to do two big trivia nights that cover, of course, the best franchise ever. Halloween. Dang. Listen, there's no new Halloween movie this year, so of course we had to fucking sneak in some Halloween. And our historian, Nathan, is actually running the trivia. Oh my gosh, he sent me pictures of the grand prizes, and I I need to win the trivia. Yeah. I'm not going to, because that would be fucked up, right? But I want to play the trivia to win these prizes, because they're that immaculate for Halloween fans. Nathan always oh, yeah. has insane prizes when we do right. trivia nights or on the Discord as well, so oof, I'm excited. Ooh. Yeah. And honestly, I'm even just thinking back now. Last year, doing the spooky season for the very first time, Sean, your first episode ever was live on Discord, wasn't it? For the Monsters? I think so. Yeah, look at that. I think it was, yeah. It's going to be good. Folks, stay tuned to the events tab. You're not going to want to miss a single thing that happens in that Discord. It's going to be a party. Now, if we're having a big birthday like we're having this year, it's only fair that you get us all gifts. Just kidding. It's only fair that we get you (laughs) gifts, right? So for the last few years, we've had these amazing special posters commemorating the anniversary. And, And this year... We're going to do it again. So every new member who signs up for our premium tier between the 1st of September and the 31st of October and sticks around, guess what? You're going to receive your very own print. Wow. Yes. That's that is nice. Hey, Binks, that's pretty cool. Being Sean, how does it feel to be on a poster for the first time? Oh, I am pumped. I am so pumped. On a poster, I feel so legit, so official. Right? Oh, so honored, you know? Yeah. Hopefully somebody frames it. Puts it up on their wall, maybe their living room, so everyone can see it. Some of the past ones have already been framed, and we've gotten pictures of what they look like. It's it's uh, pretty good. That's awesome. Wow. That's awesome. Oh, 
That's so sweet. Here I am like, um, I guess it's just going to be my mother that's framing the poster. Literally, no. Sometimes people sign up just for this. Wow. I love it. Sean, we're home decor. (laughs) Right? Look at that. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? So cool. So right underneath the live, laugh, love sign. (laughs) The hacker slash poster. Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) That should be the tagline for the poster this year. Live, laugh, love in these conditions. (laughs) Both. Both of those things. (laughs) Well, that's not all, though, because... Again, if you're new, you may not know about something. So we're going to tell you a little bit about it. It's our free sides. Oh, yeah. I got to tell you, just just so you all know, if, you, if you're if you on the fence of even kind of like becoming a member here, right? Let, let me just tell you about what I consider to be one of my favorite perks, one of the best perks that we give. And for, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, after every episode, our members are treated to a bonus segment that we like to call the B-sides. And in in the B-sides, it has so much fun. It, it We have everything from like random like banter as we, you know, getting ready to get into the episode. There's bloopers, some honestly, some hilarious comments that make me laugh out loud. If you don't know, before I jumped on to this podcast with you all, I was a listener, okay? And I listened to... I don't know, over a hundred episodes driving to and from work every day. And these B-sides had me laughing out loud in the car at times. Some really great content. But, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes we'll even go off on tangents and just go off the rails into some wild stuff. And there's just so much good stuff in there. And, ah, oh, man, there's just no other way to experience how the other half of our members or our listeners live without checking out the free sides this spooky season oh for sure and now with 100 percent more after dark content i oh yeah <laughs> i'm sorry that's probably semi because of me i could not agree more with you sean look i'm on this podcast and i will re-listen to our own b-sides because of how funny we are in b-sides right like so good this is i'm so excited now i will say like if if there is one perk definitely free sides so you're gonna want to listen to that oh i'm so so pumped about that part yeah you all get to sample it for the month for free well for the two months for free usually it's just free during october we're allowing all of our listeners to have free sides on the main feed but come november 1st it's back to b-sides baby and let me tell you Sometimes you never know what gets left on the cutting room floor until you actually hear it in B-sides. That's true. You got to check it out. I have no doubt that we will turn some of these listeners into members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people often say like, oh, I thought this was going to be a funnier show. But no, it's because I keep the actual main edit to the fucking point and then all the mm, shenanigans yes. in B-sides. Yeah. You want the raw and uncut version of Hacker Slash? You got to get to the B-sides. Mm-hmm. It's like when you see those clips of newscasters saying something out of pocket and they're like, we'll just cut that out. Right. Except we keep it. We keep it for later. Yeah. But I don't think we could talk about any of this without talking about the biggest and boldest thing that I think we've ever done. This is our first ever time to get together in person, all together, meet up, commemorate our our anniversary, which is amazing, which is going to be on Friday, October 13th. But we're going to do it in Orlando, Florida, which is cool, you know, with you, with listeners, with patrons, with all of you. I am both thrilled and intimidated. I think it's going to be lovely. Right. This is like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone for the sake of like helping something grow and expand. I know that folks have been asking for this in the past. 
I think it's so dope. I'm so excited. We're going to have a live episode recording. So we will be with you and you will be part of us recording our 300th episode of Hacker Slash. And then we're going to also have a mixer where we can all connect and, and spend time together, mingle, have fun. Then the following night, and this is what I think I'm most excited about, hmm. several of us are going to be going to Halloween Horror Nights to enjoy the spooks together. Oh, I cannot wait. It's going to be such a good time. Just imagine. We're just going to be going through, you know, the haunting attractions of Halloween Horror Nights as a group. I mean, man, we all haven't even hung out together. Oh, Really. I mean, if you think true. about it, like that's going to be quite a moment. I was just going to say, oh, I'm so excited. Oh, not me. Oh, my Scorpio moon. I'm getting a emotional y'all haven't even met mac yet (laughs) i know i know that's what i'm thinking about (laughs) oh okay so listen for as excited as i am for y'all to meet i had this moment the other day i was talking about this at work i was uh going through my time away request for october and then i realized and i remembered we already have several folks who've made arrangements to fly in from across the country mind bro not even across the country some folks are flying in from Canada. That is insane. It's 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 real. It's real. It's here. I that's like insane to me. I've even spoke to my family about this and it's just like incredible to think about. You know, not only are we celebrating such an incredible milestone, but that people are like flying in for this to hang out with us, like to hang out with fellow community members, to watch me scream my ass off at Halloween Horror Nights, like hell yeah. I love it. It's going to be amazing. Y'all need to join us. Well, if you would like to learn more, uh, just go to go.hackerslash.live slash meetup to, uh, to get the deets, you know, get your ticket, get the ticket to the live show while it's still available because, you know, eventually you're not going to be able to. So, you know, get in there while you still can and, and hang out with us and laugh and listen and love and live a little <laughs> bit, a little bit. And that's our follow up while turning our eyes to the present. In the late 80s, visionary director Tim Burton, now known for his unique eccentric style, was just making his mark in Hollywood. At this point, he brought us a tale that blurred the lines between the living and the dead. The film proved to be a departure from the typical ghost story. Instead of the living being haunted by the dead, it flipped the script, and the spirits of a dearly departed couple found themselves tormented by an insufferable family that took up residence in their beloved home. In a desperate bid to reclaim their peace, they enlisted the help of a spirit known for his malevolent mischief. The film was a significant milestone in Burton's career, marking his second feature film as a director. It was also a stepping stone for many of the cast and crew who'd go on to have illustrious careers in Hollywood. Now, the film's budget was a whopping $15 million, only $1 million of which was dedicated to the creation of visual effects and unforgettable set designs. And Danny Elfman also composed a score that added an extra layer of whimsy and eeriness to the film, which ultimately helped its blend of comedy, horror, and fantasy strike a chord with audiences, thereby cementing its status as a beloved cult classic. This week, we're talking about Beetlejuice. Who's seen this one before? If any of you tell me that you haven't seen this movie, we're going to have serious problems. She's cutting us up at the meetup. A a thousand percent. I mean, of course I've seen this movie. I'm even wearing a Beetlejuice cardigan right now, okay? It's like, you might as well say that Beetlejuice is like maybe one third of my identity. And yes, Hocus Pocus being the second and then Stranger Things being the third. All right, let's move on, you know? I have actually seen a lot of Tim Burton's earlier films and when I think of my childhood, the first movies that I ever remember seeing was Beetlejuice, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Mars Attacks, Tim Burton's Batman's, like, 
I don't know why, but me as a very, like, I might have been maybe like four or so. Like, that's one of like the very few times where you can remember your like childhood as a very, very little kid. It was Tim Burton films and Beetlejuice being like right there glued to the TV screen. Oh, yeah. Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas for me. Those were the moves. Definitely. Dang, I saw Mars Attacks in theaters. That was a good time. I mean, you're, yeah, you're saying like everyone has to have seen this board. I mean, really, who hasn't seen this one before? This is a bona fide classic. I mean, it's pure nostalgia, just like you said. Like, this is my childhood. I grew up watching this movie. I own this movie. I've watched it, I don't know, 20, 30. I don't know how many times. I lost count. Like, it's it's just insane how many times I've seen this movie. It's so nostalgic that it's something that I watch every year, every October, it's just it's a it's a classic like how could you how could you go wrong i don't i don't think you can go wrong you know watching this movie i have seen it a bazillion times before and and like you binks i've seen a lot of other tim burton stuff i think if you're part of our generation it's probably vital to your existence to have seen these movies right like edward scissorhands that just the aesthetic of that movie has lived with me to these days i mean batman like absolutely if you were born in the eighties and or, and or early or mid nineties, you probably at some point pretended to be Michael Keaton as Batman. Oh, for sure. He's just guaranteed. For sure. I mean, honestly, Absolutely. for me, he's best Batman. Well, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and agree with you there. And, yeah. but I think, you know, Tim Burton's movies over the years have really like, they've just like become a part of you. It's just like, that's part of my existence. And this is one of those, this is one of those movies to where, you know, yeah, it would seem insane. To have somebody say that they've never seen Beetlejuice, unless, I think, unless they're part of, you know, the next generation. In which case, oh goodness, they they have missed out if they have not seen this yet. Well, I'm so glad we're bringing this up then, because I do think we have quite a mix of folks who listen to this in terms of, like, demographics with age range. I think naturally we tend to fall very comfortably with people within our own age group in our, in our 30s and maybe late 20s. But I'm remembering and realizing that, like, my niece and nephews listen to the podcast and they're Gen Z. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I have a lot. We have a lot of folks who are discovering us on Spotify who are Gen Z. And I wonder how many of them have actually seen Beetlejuice. That's a good point. So this is a fantastic moment, I think, to reexamine this, especially given that this might be one of the first times we're really doing a family-friendly horror movie on the podcast. We've had some mild ones for sure that we've considered like a really good gateway drug into horror, but this is one that straight up children just watch. Yeah. Like this is baked into our childhoods and not in an inappropriate way. So I think that's a really interesting moment for us. Man, I, I saw this movie so much when I was a kid, but here's the kicker. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Oh, oh I wow. haven't watched it as an adult a single time and not for any lack of loving it. I just happened to have not i wow that's incredible it is i think this is one that i watched so often that when i was a kid that i've never had really any trouble remembering it or thinking about it and then feeling satisfied by how much i did see it already Hmm. but i'm also not someone who i think turns on a lot of things without some level of intention behind it and for some reason beetlejuice maybe because i just don't own it has fallen to the background of like Oh, okay, maybe I'll watch it if there are kids around, but I ha- it hasn't been at the forefront of things to watch. I mean, I watch the movies for the podcast, and that's about it these days. But let me tell you that while I was watching this, it felt like a warm hug. It felt like I was in the 90s again. This movie came out the year before I was born, and it felt like 
I'm watching this here in my childhood home and I'm like, damn, this really hits. This is this is nice. I, I did forget a few things. I forgot what a perv Beetlejuice is, so that's fun. <laughs> I forgot how fucking amazing Winona Ryder's performance is. And I forgot how touching our our central character's story really is when going into this. So I think there's a lot here that I found myself not only satisfied with from a nostalgia perspective, but also just satisfied with as an adult watching a movie that I enjoyed as a child and finding that it aged well. Yeah, I think, well, so I think you you definitely hit it right on the mark with just the nostalgia. That's it's like the theme so far, because that is the feeling that I also got watching this film was just tons of nostalgia from my childhood. I mean, it's just truly a comfort movie, right, for me. And, and it just, the movie also feels fun. It's just fun. It's a good time. It's dark and zany. It's filled with tons of great one-liners and great humor. And it's not too raunchy, but it's just enough. And that's that's the whole point, right? Kids can watch it. Adults can watch it. It's just such a great thing. And it's just really hard not to have a good time watching this movie. And so the whole time, you know, I'm just like a kid in a candy shop, like smiling from ear to ear watching this film. Absolutely. And I think it's just incredible We've talked a lot about like how it's just resonated and, and for our childhood. I think it's incredible that this movie celebrated its 35 year anniversary earlier this year. And it's just as iconic as that exact day that it debuted. I think when I rewatched this movie, I too was like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, I'm smiling from ear to ear. I'm laughing. I'm in awe of this cast. I also like, I think I was so shocked by you saying you haven't rewatched it since you were a child because to me, even as an adult, I'm always finding something that I just love and enjoy that just like sparks energy for me. So rewatching this, it happened again. And I'm like, man, this movie, something about it, you know, is like, it's kind of like in a glass case for me in terms of like preserving who I am and like my childhood and the innocence, but then also like just my personality and my humor and all of that is just this movie that every time I rewatch it, I'm like, I feel whole. I feel complete. I feel like it's so fun. This is absolutely beautiful. And I love that for you, Binks. That's that's super sweet. May I amend to just share what I think, what I suspect it might be for me that had me not watching this. I got into this like really big kick of things where I wanted to start collecting horror stuff. Right. I started collecting my figures, started picking out some T-shirts that are like the classic movie posters. Really enjoyed that moment. And every time I looked on certain websites, right, like Box Lunch. Box Lunch is something that in the fall typically will have some good shit. If it's not October, you look at their website, you click horror, it's only Nightmare Before Christmas. And I think that's where this movie has kind of fallen for me, where it's like... I wouldn't say watered down horror because I think this does trend in like a really good horror comedy zone, but it's the PG-13, actually no, just PG in my mind. Like it's just a totally safe, inoffensive entryway into horror. So I think I just haven't needed that purity in so long that I didn't go looking for it. That's fair. It is one that I think should probably have been added to my just, you know, I don't know if comfort movie is the right pick, but like top movies that I could legit watch once a month if I had to and, and still enjoy them. There's just, there's something about it. You know, sometimes movies people describe as classics or at least classics to them. They, they're kind of like a museum piece 
and you can watch them. You're like, oh, interesting. Like I have to consider the context. I need to know when the movie came out. I need to know the social, you know, situation at the time and consider all these things. And I can, I can then enjoy it. Uh, and it, and it feels, it feels kind of dead. It's like a dusty book. Those movies, this movie, for, considering the subject matter while watching it, I realized this movie is so alive. It is so insane how much like vibrancy there is to this film, whether it's the set or, or even just like the people, you know, the wardrobe, everything. There's, there's color in places that you wouldn't expect given the subject matter. And there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, it's like juicy, right? The acting is a lot of fun. The, the, the dialogue, everything about it is such a movie full of life. And while you're watching it, maybe that's why it's, it's so comforting. It's like, it's dealing with such a, kind of a dark morbid topic but at the same time it it brings so much life to that it really makes the afterlife seem you know pretty damn alive we'll say that but <laughs> yeah there's there's just something about it when you watch it where you don't you don't feel bad even when the, the situations happen in the movie where you're like in normal movies i would feel really depressed right now but i don't you know it's okay it's all going to be fine that's so interesting that you say that because even now i'm thinking back to like earlier this year when i mean I think in some ways we all have, but especially Chris and I, like we had some close deaths in the family. And so, man, I rewatched this movie and I'm like, the concept of that, like you just explained right now, Mac, like I, I felt like it was comfort. It was fun. And you would think in another context, it still would be a little too much too soon. So I just feel like throughout the whole movie, I was feeling that comfort. I was feeling, you know, the admiration of so many things. I mean, we can't talk about it enough. It was just like, it is that warm hug, a thousand percent. Yeah, it makes me really sad that I didn't watch this during that horrible streak of familial grief. I really wish we had just spiked this in somewhere, you know? <laughs> you know, it being, next time I think if we both end up in these parallels of each other's lives, we're both going through some similar shit at a similar time. Maybe we need to exchange watch lists. I feel a little therapeutic because I mean, a mission to the hug. Yeah. And uh, Beetlejuice could have been it. Beetlejuice definitely could have been it. My other, my other comfort warm hug is Gone Girl, though. So I don't really know. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I can respect that. Oh, it would have been distracting gosh. enough. But you know what, Mac? I think it's so interesting that you say that, right? You think about what this movie deals with. And I think the biggest surprise for me was that obviously thinking about how much it stands up for me and how much I remembered. Something that was lost on me was how fucked up this movie starts, despite it being so fun. And it's not really something that you should be able to say is a surprise. Once you've seen this movie, you know the deal, you know the stakes, it is what it is. But what does surprise me is how fucking perfectly it's executed in its tone to not deviate from that course mm. because this is honestly one line of dialogue away from being really fucking depressing and yet it balances it and that's the tim burton touch isn't it taking the gloomy taking the dark taking the macabre but making it light making it palatable making it digestible for even children and you know i think about even the inverse of this. The inverse of this movie is The Others. Right. But this is a zany 80s comedy. Like, get the fuck out of here. This is true. It's wild. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it definitely it definitely takes that heavy tone and, and flips it around and does a 180 and gives you a really fun, good time. I, I don't know. Like, it definitely... You know, thinking now, I don't know if anything really surprises me about this film, to be honest. And it's, you know, it's something that I've watched for so many times and, you know... 
first watched it such a young age that I can't really remember how I felt when I first watched it as a kid, to be honest with you. But like, you know, Chris, you said that you were surprised by how perfectly executed the tone of the film is, right? We talked about that. And I also think that I think that it's just also surprising at how perfectly executed just the effects are because of how low budget the effects really were and how perfectly they were utilized, which adds to the tone of the movie for sure. So I think it's just another layer of what you were talking about. Yeah, no, let me tell you, man, this movie for sure is life gives you lemons and you squeeze it to make lemonade. This is taking a challenge or taking the idea of like what these effects could be and leaning into it and playing into it to effect mm-hmm. versus being hindered by it, which is fucking incredible. Yeah. You know, and I think what I think is the most surprising actually for me when I watched this just for this episode was that I actually found a moment that I had not picked out before or don't remember picking out before. And I'm, I can't wait to talk about it in the second half because I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow it up right now but it, it's just a mention there's like a specific part in the film where it mentions something that i had never connected the dots to until this watch and we're talking like 30 years of watching this movie we're talking about easily probably over 30 times of watching this movie and i just never i never noticed it before Ooh. so that has got to be the most surprising moment for me in this film so but i can't tell you now you know i i was surprised by a couple things there are moments that I realized are incredibly dark in the film. There's subject matter that is incredibly dark. And I don't think I ever realized it was like tucked in there. But the other thing was like how crass Beetlejuice is, because obviously that's like his character, but I didn't really like he curses and did not, I did not remember that. He's like very rude, very crass. And there's like the extent of that, I think was lost in memory over time and then when watching it again you're just like oh man this guy is this guy's a bad dude and like it's kind of awesome it was kind of a great surprise to realize like man i can really get into this as an adult and and i think like you've mentioned you know tone and the tone here is indeed perfect and there's other movies that like deal with the subject matter in a way that like doesn't make you feel horrible like coco for instance like coco is a beautiful movie but it's very it is very emotional, and it goes way more emotional than this movie. I still refuse to watch Coco. What do you mean? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I know. Listen, okay, let me tell you this. I walked into Disney earlier this year, and there was a restaurant there that is themed after Day of the Dead, and they talk about this. I read one fucking sentence about like starting to get to imagine being able to say hello to those you've lost. Oh. I immediately started to like tear up, and like I had to really bring it together. One sentence on a fucking sign did that to me. I'm not ready for Coco. I can't do it. I am telling you, do not watch Coco. <laughs> Thank you, Binks. Thank you for fucking understanding me and not pushing me. Coco is one of my favorite movies, and it is annihilation of the soul. But I have to agree with you, Mike. It's so beautifully, like, executed, and again, like, children watch it, and it's, like, dark and very sad subject matter. And I guess that is that Beetlejuice, right? It's whimsical and all this other stuff. But again, that dark subject matter and the undertones of it. But here's the thing. I think it's maintenance. I think if you have Coco before you need Coco, you're in a great spot. I didn't have Coco before I needed Coco. Uh, 
I no, maybe dis- not. Okay. Well, even then, like, like Beetlejuice aside, like I haven't watched Beetlejuice since I was a kid. And maybe if I had confronted these themes and made peace with those themes, like, I think even like, Binks, I think you and I went through very, very similar things. But I also think that you as a person have processed and worked through so much of that and we're expecting so much of that more than I ever allowed myself to be. I see. So I think that's like a a difference between us there where I probably needed to watch Coco 70 fucking times before shit got real for me before I moved back home. But then I didn't. And then here we are. Well, now it's too late. (laughs) Okay. Look, the one thing that surprised me actually didn't, but let's get into it because it's necessary this cast, I think we've already mentioned it, but I, I want to like name some names here because I think it's important. Glenn Shaddix, rest in peace, also known as the voice of Mayor from Night Before Christmas. Important that the people know. There he is. Iconic. Absolutely iconic. The people's mayor, if you will. The people's mayor, a thousand percent. Catherine O'Hara. Do I even need to tell you where she's from? Hello. More, more recently, the one and only iconic Schitt's Creek. But so good. I mean, incredible actress, without a doubt. My idol in life, Winona Ryder. Do I also need to get into it? Probably not. I'm not even, I'm going to leave it there because if you don't know who Winona Ryder is, then I don't even know what to tell you personally. Famed goddess Winona Ryder. Yeah. There we go. We got Alec Baldwin. He's gotten into some things recently, but you know, gotta say, <laughs> gotta say his name because yes, he's in it. Let me tell you, this is. My favorite Alec Baldwin movie. Interesting. I find that I'm generally, I think, not a fan of Alec Baldwin. I think he looks kind of gross. It's funny that you say that because this is Alec Baldwin's least favorite movie that he's ever been in. Yeah, so. well, that <laughs> makes course. sense. It tracks with me not liking him very much. Hmm. Well, there you go. But you know what? Someone who you should love even more, Gina Davis, who we're actually going to be talking about sometime soon. So I can't wait about that. But of course... The one and only, the star of the show, Michael Keaton, the people's Batman, or at least our Batman, who is literally in this movie for just 14 and a half minutes. Right. That is insane to me. He's literally the main character on only 14 and a half minutes of screen time. And let me tell you that he is incredible. Don't even let that deter you because this movie is great and just tells you how great the rest of the cast is for something like that to be the case. But... All that being said, as big of a Tim Burton fan as I am, I'm going to be the person to bring up a disappointment because, hear me out, I have to call out Tim Burton for his earlier films and his casting because, man, boy, oh boy, his earlier films are white as hell. This is like <laughs> there it is. a full-blown white cast, friends. <laughs> it's it's rough. Yeah, I think there's maybe one person in the film that isn't white. Uh, and guess what? They're a football player. So, you know, do better, Tim Burton. I'm just saying your earlier films are a product of his time. And I know that people are going to be like, oh, but that's the late 80s. That's the early 90s. Uh, is it? Uh, is it? I don't know, guys. I don't know. Yeah, it's not the best excuse. Not the best excuse. Really isn't. But yeah, I'll, I'll be the first one to say it. I love Tim Burton, but damn. There is something very unsurprising about this movie, though. And, and it, I think it comes from us having seen it, you know, a plethora of times. And it's not really a scary movie for us. But I think if you're a young enough child, you know, watching this for the first time in, you know, maybe when it came out or maybe when you got it on VHS or something, like you could probably get a little spooked because there's, there's some topics, there's some visuals in here that are pretty extreme. I doubt adults will typically find this scary, but you never know. 
hold on, a counterpoint, you don't think that the bureaucracy of death is something to be afraid of? Oh, at this point, we, ha- we have to be used to it, right? No. This, this whole movie screams DMV, you know? Honestly, death is supposed to be a sweet, sweet release. I don't want more paperwork after I die. I think that is a frightening thought. The movie frightening? No, 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 no. But I do think it paints a picture of an afterlife that is equal parts entertaining and equal parts fucking terrifying. I mean, yeah, but it also could be a lot worse. It could be so much worse. And also, I feel like it just gives you a routine, you know, like, okay, sit in the waiting room, maybe have have a couple friends. I kind of compare it to like what my grandparents and like some of my neighbors must be doing when they go to the clinic, you know, and they're in the lobby area just chit-chatting with their friends and stuff. Yeah. So, doesn't seem half bad. Not half bad. Not half bad. No thanks. I spent all that time in the Navy waiting in lobbies. I don't think I'm done with that now. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, all right. So, so I have to agree with Mac though because I think to some especially like adults, maybe you're not going to be as intimidated or scared by this. Although the prosthetics and like costumes and makeup, special effects, all that could kind of get you a little bit. There's some, I agree that there are definitely some things that are like, ooh, that's a little weird. But I don't, I wouldn't put it anywhere in the caliber of of scary. I mean, there's, it's a reason, there is a reason why this movie is like a family-friendly ish type horror comedy yeah i mean i i guess i can see that i mean i don't know i'm just trying to think back because i i you know i was born in 87 this movie came out in what 88 and so naturally i probably watched this at a really really young age uh in the early 90s and I'm just obviously really hard to remember that far back. And I just don't remember ever being scared of this film. I do remember being scared of a lot of other things, but I don't remember being scared of this film. I remember really having a good time. So I I could see maybe there's some kids out there that might see some of the visuals in this, in this film and, and maybe it sticks with them and it's a little bit frightening to witness. You're not going to get any, any like jump scare type things really. I don't think there's anything like that or anything truly haunting that's going to come to get you in this movie. It's, it's really just a really, whole i don't want to say wholehearted that's kind of a weird way to put it but just a, a movie about ghosts and possession that's truly like we all said for the whole family it's it's a dark film yes it's with a it has a grim story sure but it just the way it's done just makes it feel fun so it doesn't feel frightening at all so i don't think you would really find or your average viewer would really find yourself scared anywhere during this movie but you will have a good time i promise you that mm. You know, and I think this is, I think this is so interesting to consider. It's a good time, yes, and I think it's a good time because of its approach, as I mentioned earlier, as a zany '80s comedy. I think it's more original the more you think about it, and the older this movie gets. But then when you think about it in a time capsule of what it is, like, yes, it's a unique movie, sure. But this is also again one of Tim Burton's early films. It has a certain level of familiarity to it. And I think family-friendly ghost movies is not something that we haven't seen before. But this is a very interesting experience for me. But the more ghost movies we get, the more I feel like this one stands out on its own. Which is usually not how that works. Usually it comes after something and you think, damn, it really did something well. And yet this predates so much of what we consider to be a good ghost movie. And it's out here making the others look like jump change. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know about I don't know about making the others look like chump change, but it's just a better feel. I think what makes I mean this this has to be an original film when we talk about original films because you know it tell it tells you a ghost story from the other side before any other movie that I can recall really did something like that. I think even Tim Burton himself said something along the lines of this film being like a comical version of The Exorcist told from two dead people's point of view, right? And so, yeah, you can have hints of different things, but I don't think anyone had ever done anything like like this, even just from the story aspect, um, said it, like let alone the visuals and the zany different approach that was taken to make this movie come alive. So uh, if there was an original movie that we're going to talk about, I mean, this has got to be up there with originality. Damn. Ghost was in 1990, two years after this movie. Right. But one was Ghostbusters. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Casper? No. <laughs> yeah, but we're talking about, yeah, Cas- well, Casper was 92, yeah. 90 something. But yeah. I, I don't think you can compare this to another. You can compare it like in relation to other movies in terms of like how different it is. But I think trying to compare it to being super similar is just like a wasted effort. It has so many quirks that it makes it seem like its own universe that you could live in. You could just crawl into this place and it would seem logical because it's so quirky and illogical. It just has a feeling that nothing else really matches except for other Tim Burton films, except for nightmare before Christmas. You know, there's, there's, there's feelings that match it, but there's not exactly a story like it. There's not exactly the dialogue that's like this. There's just something about it that is unparalleled when it comes to any ghost movie or honestly, what other movie is like this non-ghost or, you know, or anything. Yeah. None. The answer is none. And I will say, um, so Michael McDowell, he's the original. Obviously, this story is from him. It's, he's one of the writers or the main writer, really. His original story for Beetlejuice was supposed to be way darker, way more sinister. And thank goodness no offense, Michael McDowell, but thank goodness that that wasn't the case because then it would have been so similar to what we've already seen, right? What makes this so unique is that it's zany and light and funny. We keep saying it around something that it could be very dark or is dark, right? Um, and I definitely agree with Tim Burton that it's got a little bit of exorcist from a different perspective, even poltergeist as well. Um, but I, agree with you too, Mac, whether it's like you can't necessarily compare this movie to anything else and say that they are exactly the same. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's got the hints of this and that, but it's something that is so unique and that's why it's withstood the test of time. While we've seen so many things unfold after this, why, you know, we've got Halloween Horror Nights that just recently, uh, just a few years ago, did a, a house based off of Beetlejuice, which I went to. Yeah. Was incredible. It's great. Had a blast. We've got, we used to have, uh, speaking of actually, uh, Universal, they used to do a show for Halloween Horror Nights. They, they've got Beetlejuice walking the street. Like he's just an iconic character. It's an iconic movie. That is the testament of how original, in my opinion, this movie is. You know what else stands the test of time though? That fucking ending, because I loved it. This ending gets better every single time I see it. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about how this movie feels like a warm hug. The ending of this movie feels like the deep sigh that comes after a good, satisfying hug. Like when you're still in the clutches of embrace and you're just, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dang, what a, that's a good way to put that though, because I, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really know how to put words to how I felt about the ending outside of it just feels like a really perfect, happy ending. It just very lighthearted, right? And, and not to say like that the film didn't take a lighthearted approach to a dark tone that we keep saying, but when you compare it to the rest of the film, it was a very, you know, lighthearted, nice, wholesome, happy ending. Without a doubt. And for me, I just think like, all I'll say is that Harry Belafonte and Beetlejuice are synonymous in my head forever. <laughs> For sure. It is the perfect combo. And that, I'll leave it at that. I've got nothing else more to add other than, yep, ending is phenomenal. Cherry on top. The sigh after a great hug. That was such a good example, Chris. You know, a lot of movies, I think, have an ending that like lands the plane, but it lands the plane kind of wobbly and you feel the impact. This movie lands a plane with like fireworks. Like you touch down and there are literally fireworks exploding everywhere. You didn't even feel the impact of the road. All you feel is just like, wow, I thought the ride was good. And now we landed and the landing was great. It, it just absolutely executes a great feeling ending. And most movies can't come close to that. They're just trying to make it through. Everybody claps at the end and is getting off the plane swiftly and efficiently yeah god damn it chris i was gonna say is this an example of where people clapping when the plane lands is acceptable yeah Uh, it's never acceptable, first of all. Not even for Beetlejuice. Not, you know, but let's say you were watching Beetlejuice on a plane as it landed. Yes, that would oh, be, got it. that okay. would be acceptable. That's, yeah. that's what I wanted to know. It's very important to be specific. So Mac, when yeah. you fly in for the meetup, I expect you to watch Beetlejuice and clap. I want a video. I don't know that I could do that. You know, I don't, I don't know that I could solo clap while watching a movie with headphones in or something that might, people might be a little scared of me. Damn. <laughs> Well, obviously, we've had a lot of great things to say, but I think it's time we start making our way to our ratings and make this shit official. Before we get there, though, Sean, how would you describe the gore score? I mean, well, there really isn't there really isn't much real gore in this film, so it's definitely getting a low gore score. But like, what it does have is some really wacky and fun effects that can, you know, to your to to the points we made earlier, they might be alarming for some small children. But nothing to elevate the gore score here. It's it's getting a low gore score for sure. And what about the animal report? You know, no animals are harmed in this movie. But I can't believe I'm going to say this. They did do harm. Yeah. So that dog's got a body count. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's where I leave this animal report. It's a it's a unique one this time around. The collector the co- would not be happy about this film. No, not at all. <laughs> he would not. Well, let's go ahead and get into our ratings then. Beetlejuice from nineteen eighty eight in commemoration of Binks's birthday. Was it a hack or a slash? Yeah, you know what? Let's let's do it. You said it. Let's get the obvious out of the way. This is obviously a slash for me. But we're going to humor me on the eve of my birthday so that I can get into one of my favorite movies of all time. To quote Beetlejuice, actually, I've seen Beetlejuice about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Okay? This movie is a fun time from start to finish. It's incredibly quotable, obviously. And quite frankly, look, bold take I'm about to make, but I feel like I'm right. It's one of the most iconic films of the 80s, one of the best movies of the 80s. And yeah, I mean, fight me on it. I don't know. I I think that's true. I, I think that this movie is so fantastic to have on the background. It's fantastic to sit and watch while being with friends. It's fantastic when you're feeling down and just want to dance around to Harry Belafonte's jams to get out of a funk. Because I know I've been there and I can promise you that. You know, so 
I'll stop there because I can quite literally go on forever. So once more for good measure, this is an absolutely, no doubt, in my mind, a fucking slash. Woo! Okay. Spicy. Well, I mean, dang. Yeah, there you go. I- I'm sure you can guess the direction that this scoring is going to go for, I mean, I would hope for all of us, but definitely for me. The story in this film is great. It's a classic horror comedy that, it, I mean, it still stands up today. It might have even gotten better, I dare say. Some would say it ages like fine wine. Uh, the cast and the acting is great. It's the zany low-budget effects make it even better. Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice is chef's kiss. Tim Burton is truly a visionary. Uh, it really shows in this movie. You can't help but to really appreciate the creativity that the mind of Tim Burton has and how he's able to translate that to the screen. This film has cemented itself in the horror genre and has has really become one of my favorite films of all time. This is a forever slash for me. Wow. What else can you say, honestly? Beetlejuice is an absolute classic. I think everything about it's fantastic. The actors are at their peak. The visuals are bright and fantastical. The music is like an instant core memory when you hear it. The pacing is perfect. And the story is solid. It is just a 100% slash. Well, listen, I don't want to stop a good thing while it's going. This movie is definitely a slash. I'm disappointed in myself for not having watched this more recently. And I do think that perhaps if I had, you know, continued watching it into my adulthood, maybe I could have done some better processing in preparation for losing people in life. I think this movie paints the afterlife or paints, you know, just coping with death in a really interesting way, in a way that takes the edge off, in a way that really would have cut through a lot of the grief that we had earlier in the year. And I think what stands out to me the most from this movie in particular is the fact that while I didn't watch it into my adulthood, I think it has cemented itself as a movie I'm going to show my kids. Like, this is a great pairing with Nightmare Before Christmas, which, again, is a perfect November 1st to December 25th movie. But I think it, it pairs itself really nicely with that and is actually going to be the foundation of like a horror collection that I build for my future children. I don't know how many pure wholesome movies we're going to be doing on this show, but this is a great way to kick it off with a universal slash. Now, you can find this movie streaming online. You can check the link in our show notes to see where you can find it right now. Either way, join us in the second half so we can unpack this goodness together. We'll see you in a bit. This episode of Hacker Slash is brought to you by Dante's Inferno Room, the hottest spot in the afterlife. Tucked away in the sultry shadows of the netherworld, Dante's Inferno Room is the ultimate afterlife aphrodisiac. It's the perfect place to shake off that postmortem chill. And when we say hot... We're not just talking about the temperature, folks. It's a place where the temperature's always sizzling, and the spirits, they're absolutely smoldering. Dante's Inferno Room is not your typical haunt. It's a place where the spectral and the sensual intertwine, where the ethereal and the erotic dance in mesmerizing masquerade. It's a place where the afterlife gets a little after dark, if you know what I mean. Whether you've been on the other side for a moment or a millennium, Dante's Inferno Room is the place to be. Savor a phantom cocktail at the bar, or sway on the dance floor with the most alluring apparitions you've ever laid eyes on. And don't worry about the dress code. In Dante's Inferno Room, it's all about feeling comfortable in your own ectoplasm. 
And for all you sleazy poltergeists out there, don't forget about our witching hour between midnight and 3 a.m. With deals so good, it might just make your heart stop again. Looking for a little more thrills and chills? Join the VIP experience in Lydia's dark room for an experience that is guaranteed to raise something from the dead. So when you're feeling a little too mortal, remember, Dante's Inferno Room is waiting because in the afterlife, the party's just getting started. Welcome back, folks. You are now entering the spoiler zone for Beetlejuice from 1988, which is our universal slash. Now, we have a lot to get to here, but before we get into the specifics of our ratings, let's go through the kills. Well, we only really see two deaths in this movie with Adam and Barbara, so we're we're not really going to dive into that, but we do see a lot of dead people, a.k.a. ghosts, so let's talk about them. Who is... The ghost with the most. My vote is the charred man in the waiting room that offers Adam the cigarette because tell me that isn't a vibe, you know? It is. You're in the waiting room. You're dead. You're burnt to a little crisp. And yeah, it's because of the cigarette, but you're just going to keep on smoking it because, well, you're stuck here forever. Might as well chill out and relax, I guess. I mean, this is true. I mean, do you think, you know, he's also obviously a chain smoker, but you think he like died in a fire? Probably by his own hand with his cigarette. Maybe, maybe fell asleep. Yeah, maybe fell asleep with the cigarette burning. Absolutely. Lit his house on fire, died. Sucks a sucker, yes. Hey, it happens. There's got to be a mega, like, I don't give a fuck energy with that, though, if you keep on smoking the cigarette, even in the afterlife. <laughs> well, I'm already dead. How much worse can we get, you know? Kind of that. That's the thing. You know, I actually think my favorite ghost is Miss Argentina, who is also the receptionist in this afterlife. Mm. One, she's hilarious. Two, she's probably good at her job, even if she doesn't really care at it. Three, I love the added complexity here of her being the, eh, I would say, like the person to really snap them into, hey, you've already been, you've only been dead for weeks and you already need help. This is how it works. Everything's in the manual. But then she also explains to them, how everyone else goes through death and how it's such a personal thing. And she talks about, I wouldn't have had my little accident had I known. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's some depth there, even for a character who's pretty fucking funny. This is true. I love that part, too. Oh, my gosh. So good. So good. I also love that she's, like, so brightly colored, you Mm -hmm. know? Because I think a lot of times you imagine ghosts are going to be pale and boring, and her hair and her skin tone are just, like, super cool. You know, I think it's because she was bold, bright, and full of life. Miss Argentina, what can you say, you know? Mm -hmm. I do do enjoy the magician's assistant as well, a.k.a. the woman sitting on the couch with her, you know, body cut in half. I I like that she's, you know, she's reading, she's chilling. It's kind of, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of silly because you would imagine, you know, magicians would never risk their assistance with actual sharp objects here. And it's like, well, what if they actually did and things went wrong and now she has to pay the price forever and you know for all eternity and everything but i don't know i just like love the attitude that she has when beetlejuice is being disgusting and she ain't she ain't here for it she's not gonna deal with it yeah she's not having none of that i don't know the name of the dude but the guy that looked like he swallowed like a rib and it got caught sideways in his in his neck or in his throat or whatever and likely just choked and died on that man that sucks you know i don't know why that rib went down his throat i don't know how you eat ribs but i definitely don't Try to swallow them, you know, but man, what a way to go. Yikes. What about Juno, though? Juno was interesting, right? She chain smoked, too. She was great. She was great. 
but it didn't look like she died from smoking. It looked like somebody slit her throat. You know, Juno's been through some shit. And let me just tell you that all these ghosts are working so hard in the afterlife. They're dealing with people's bullshit. They're dealing with the paperwork of it all. I don't blame them. Yeah. I'd be over that shit too. But it was really cool when she is smoking, though, that the smoke is like exhaling through her neck which I thought was a really good touch. Yeah, it's a great touch for, I don't know, like consistency purposes or like just like how it should work. But man, is that like disgusting. (laughs) I guess Harry the Hunter, you know, with the shrunken head, I think iconic. That's another memorable one, especially as a kid. I was like, whoa, that's very odd to see. Definitely, definitely. (laughs) Without a doubt, obviously. That one's a pretty memorable one for sure. That one sticks with you. Like when you think of the whole scene like that, you that's one, maybe because they focus on it the most, but definitely sticks out him and, and the witch doctor. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. And also the football players, they were so sweet. I mean, they were so annoying to Juno, but at the same time, like, you know, they just wanted to know what's good, coach. Like, what next? You know what that reminds me of, though? Hmm. A sequel to Beetlejuice could have the alternate version of if the entire cast of Yellow Jackets actually died in the plane crash. (laughs) Okay. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Okay, though. Okay. But now that we're talking about, like, the ghosts, right? And all these ghosts that we're talking about are in this, you know, waiting room. You're talking about Yellow Jackets and planes crashing. The one thing I was talking about earlier that I didn't catch until this watch for some reason is that there's a moment when they're waiting, Adam and Barbara are waiting, and like that PA announcement goes off and it literally says flight 409 is like arriving at gate three. And flight 409 is like an infamous United Airlines plane that crashed somewhere in like Wyoming back in 1955 and every single fucking passenger died on that plane, but nobody knows how or why it went down. Oof. Which is interesting that they kind of threw that in there so subtly. And I, in 30 years, didn't catch it until just now. Yeah, the next movie is going to have Flight 180 from Final Destination. Nice. Obviously, I'm full of shit, but it'd be fucking hilarious. (laughs) Wow. I didn't know that. Well, to be fair, I also didn't, I don't think I really even knew about that flight to begin with. But that's incredible. You know, this does bring me to my favorite thing to look at in this movie. And it is the ghosts. In total, I think a lot of movies have ghosts that look the same and that's so boring and so played out. And every ghost here like has a uniqueness to them. They like really wanted them to like look like their death, except for, of course, our two main ghosts, because, you know, being wet for an entire film would be really uncomfortable. That's legitimately why they weren't wet the entire film is because, you know, they realized like, oh, that would be like really uncomfortable for the actors to do. But I actually liked that they didn't look gross, you know, but everyone else with their, oh God, like being cut in half, having a shrunken head, being burned to a crisp, being flattened like a pancake, whatever it was. I didn't like the one that was hanging. That wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of, but I just love that everyone was super unique, super independent. They all had their, like their own character expressed in their costume. What a brilliant idea. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason that this film won an Oscar for its makeup work because it's just so freaking good. So good. So memorable. You mentioned costumes. I think that's my favorite scene because 
there is no way on this planet that I will ever think of a red dress, an elegant, like, 80s, 90s type of vibe, you know, wedding dress, and not think of Lydia's red wedding dress. Like, that's just Mm. seared in my head. Honestly, all of Lydia's costumes are out of this world phenomenal. I think the one that resonates with me the most that is just, like, so my energy is her with the with the big hat when she's first taking the pictures outside. That whole outfit is like, oh, it's just chef's kiss. So, so good. And one thing I'll say, another thing that like, it's not just me. This is just a why don't thing. Tell me that you don't think of white and black stripes. And maybe you think of a zebra, but you also probably think of Beetlejuice. A hundred percent. I think of three things and three things only before I even get to zebra. I think of Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, and that was Presley's Jailhouse Rock. Mm. You missed me with the last one. <laughs> of course I did. Jesus Christ. But think about like how incredible that is. Just like two hues. I mean, literally white and black stripes. And you have like instantly thought of two movies. That's just incredible. It's, it's, it's just like a testament to the work and the costume design work and like what they imagined, the feel of these characters to basically create an entire brand that has lasted over 30 years just based off of white and black. Incredible. I can't, oh, such good work. But the costumes for everybody yeah. were yeah. incredible. Like when Otho's on that little, I don't know, deck, and he's yeah. wearing like a kimono. Yeah. All right. First of all, you're fabulous. So we love that. But Catherine O'Hara is so stunning in this film, just an absolute work of art. And her costume, it's just, it's absolutely New York. When she first shows up, like decked out in black, and you're just like, oh, 100% New York. And then we see Lydia, of course, also wearing all black, but in a very di- kind of different way. Mm-hmm. It's just brilliant, brilliant. And then, of course, the husband, the father, kind of looks like a finance bro, you know? <laughs> he's got he's got the button down on. You can tell that he works in an office. Have you ever <laughs> seen two people more mismatched than these two people? Right, right. I mean, you know, it it played well. It played well, I thought. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, they definitely were polar opposites from the way they looked to the personalities, completely just opposites. How did that man contribute to the making of Lydia Deeds? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was going to think of a response, but actually, yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. 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 That's true. I know. Where's the where's the real uh, mother, you know? I would believe more so that Lydia Dietz is Adelia Dietz's tormented daughter with an estranged relationship with her mother than I would believe that she's Charles's daughter. That and, feels yeah, weird. It does actually. Now that now that you mention it, it does kind of feel a little a little odd and misplaced for sure. Yeah, you know, costumes, makeup, definitely. Obviously, we can talk about the effects all day long. There were some really good looking like I'm obviously not amazing effects, but like the effects and the way that that they worked with it was just so fun. Like you think about, you know, scenes where Adam and Barbara are like pitching their scare tactics to Juno, like that effect on their faces or whatever they did, elongating the face and taking the eyeballs out and all that was super, super fun, really cool to look at. Even when they're like being, you know, summoned into their wedding clothes, minus the transition effects, of course, because those were terrible. But the way they looked afterwards as they were rotting and decomposing, really, really cool. But thinking of like a, I know this can be a little bit odd, maybe interesting, but I really, 
this time around felt myself really enjoying even just the opening credits where it's going through the town, the like aerial view of going into the town. And then it like, it actually like slowly like transitions into the model town at some point when it's going closer to the house or whatever, which I, you know, I just really appreciated this time. Like it's, it was just a, a cool little visual to get. Yeah. I think that transition was super seamless. And again, another one, like as a kid, I was like, wow, this is incredible. And also like, maybe that this isn't necessarily visual. Maybe, I don't know, but like the concept of having like a little tiny home type thing was so cool to me as a kid. So just the way that they seamlessly transitioned that I think was just like, wow. And then what is this thing? A whole tiny town like that they have built out. It reminds me of like the little toys I play at home, you know, like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's just so cool. There's something so cool about like all the miniatures throughout the film yeah. because they, I don't know what it is about miniatures. You know that they're not like the real thing and you know that they're silly, but it actually feels more real than a lot of the effects we get these days because it feels tangible. It feels like you could pick up the miniature. You would feel the texture just by looking at it. And you get stuff like CGI these days. And you're just like, I don't feel anything. Mm, yeah. But you're looking at like that fake grass. And you're like, I know what that feels like. I know what yeah. that foam feels like on my, on my thumb. And to me, that's like the beauty of Tim Burton and his whole thing with stop motion because there's there's just such an element of like – of that, like you feel like you're in it, you're watching something that's different, that's like you're just trying to make sense of it a little bit. And that's with Nightmare Before Christmas, that's with Corpse Bride, that's with, you know, all of these things. And even in Beetlejuice, where it's in few moments here and there, but that I think it's such a different thing that, man, why is there not enough stop motion nowadays? Well, I guess Wes Anderson definitely is another big, biggie fan of that, but. Yeah, I think now when we we talked about obviously the sequel, but when we think of that, Bring I'm it like, back. we got to do stop motion. I really hope so because that's like the gem of this movie, yeah. or one of the gems. Obviously, there's a ton, but like a big part of it is the visual and the stop motion. And like you were saying, Mac, like you just kind of like love the miniature stuff because you feel like you're there and you can tangibly like understand what that's like versus just seeing it on regular screen. Man, that was so much of what I think made this movie so special. And you really said it beautifully. It needs to make a comeback. And especially with Tim Burton styling in particular. And that actually shows up really well in my favorite scene. Man, I love the little nods we get. And the groundwork that's laid. And the foundation that's set for what's to come with A Nightmare Before Christmas. Because, ooh, when we get this moment when Beetlejuice is finally emerging into the real world, where we actually see him do some shit, and we have a little Jack Skellington at the top of the carousel that's on top of his head, and we also see, in, you know, at several points in the movie, the sandworm that was inspiration for the snake design in Nightmare Before Christmas. Yep. This style, this aesthetic, it comes to life so beautifully, and obviously you're watching this in 1988, and you know, this is just a Beetlejuice thing. Maybe you appreciate it more in Nightmare Before Christmas, but I know that I saw Nightmare Before Christmas before I saw Beetlejuice. So it's always been like an Easter egg kind of sensation for me. But man, to see these two worlds coexist and to see these two aesthetics coexist in such a great moment where Beetlejuice, for as little as he's on screen in this movie, he shows up and he shows out and chaos ensues. And I think that's where he actually becomes like, 
we get we get the payoff of what a malevolent force he is and it's just such a fun delightful moment i see it now right but like i it's true because like watching both movies as a kid i never connected those dots but now you watch it and you're like really appreciating well i guess you would say like you consider it an easter egg but really it might be an easter egg in nightmare before christmas right but man yeah what a good thought and he's got a few of those even with like mars attacks as well and and whatnot. True. Plenty of like premonitions of his mm-hmm. to come work. My favorite scene, I think, was the easiest one to pick out, though. I, I, it's the most obvious one. It's the banana boat scene. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, how can you not love that scene? It's so silly because when you're watching it, you can get into the movie and you're, you're like, this is kind of ridiculous, right? But when you think about it, it's like these actors had to pretend to be possessed while singing a Harry Belafonte song. <laughs> it probably was so fun. Right. It had to have been fun to film that scene because they just got to be absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And and what's not to love about that? I wonder how long it took to like get that all the way through. Oh, that'd be you cool. Know? Yeah. How many takes did that take? I would be the one to mess it up on purpose just to do it again. Just to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that I actually, I feel like at one point in time, I knew the routine. At this point, I definitely don't. But I'm, I, I, Wish I could go back in time and tell my younger self in the middle of a Sunday dinner, go and do that routine right now in the middle of, of dinner <laughs> and see what will happen. You can do that when you have kids. Oh, when I have kids. Are you kidding me? When I have kids, that's that's ritual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you better shake, shake, shake Sonora, okay? <laughs> <laughs> For me, because I feel like outside of, outside of the Banana Boat song, right, I, I feel like the the most iconic scene that sticks out to me is literally when it's really just the two moments, right? When, when we see like that office waiting room scene, like you see Adam and Barbara in there waiting initially, but then really it's when Beetlejuice is in there pulling the number, right? And, and taking a seat. And I think, man, Mac, you said it earlier. It's giving DMV vibes. And it's so fucking true. I don't know. I mean, I haven't really had that experience out here in Florida, but in California, or at least in LA, that is the fucking DMV. You will die in that waiting room. You can get there at six o'clock in the morning and there's already a line trying to get in and you pull a number and you're sitting there and you're waiting for it to come up. And all you get, I mean, it's just sitting there like now serving window or like, B, 65 at window number four. And you're just sitting there like, when the fuck is mine coming? And it just like skips numbers. It makes no fucking sense. You're just there forever. It skips letters of the alphabet. It's your whole fucking day. You just want to die. I had this three years in a row going to the local tax office in Miami and waiting to pay cash for our property taxes. It was a fucking nightmare. Yeah. The it's o- terrible. The only thing I could compare it to is sometimes at the Publix by my house, the deli. I don't yeah. know, man. They just start shouting different numbers. And I'm like, I can't stand here any longer. I just want some ham. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's like that football commercial. He pulls a number and they're like, whatever they call his number. He's like, 52, that's me. That's me. Going to get some cold cuts today. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. <laughs> It's literally me. Oh, my gosh. I love all of your favorite scenes, truthfully. And I can't even imagine picking just one 
because I'm so serious when I say, like, I watched this movie and I really tried to think about what is my favorite scene. The whole movie is my favorite scene. But I know I have to say something. So one thing that I'll just bring up is, I guess, my opening quote, right? So Lydia, when she, like, has her real, like, good moment to speak to Barbara and Adam, like, her, you get, like, some good dialogue out of her. This is, like, Winona Ryder, like, ready to go. Her reaction when she's taking those Polaroids and realizes that they have no feet is like just pure awe and like could care less about the fact that like she's seeing these ghosts and just the way that she delivers that like, I myself am strange and unusual. I can't even begin to tell you. That was when it was like, that, that clicked for me. I was like, yep. I'm Lydia Dietz. And I think in some ways, when I was rewatching this movie, I was like, man, maybe that's why like I'm so fascinated by like ghosts and paranormal. Although I am not fully Lydia Dietz where I wouldn't be so cool, calm and collected if I like took a picture and there were no feet <laughs> of a, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I am myself and I'm a little chicken shit every now and then. So like I might scream, but. Would I then want to know about them a little bit more? Would I use some of the practices I've learned to make sure that they're not like demons or something crazy? Hell yeah. But I just think she like really spoke to a group of young girls in their childhood or in their like in the prime of their teenage years that felt like they were just strange and unusual and like liked things that weren't very gender specific, like two women, right? Like, I loved wearing all black and yeah, I played with Barbies and all that other stuff, but I love, I favored things that were all black. I favored weird music. I favored like all of this stuff that Lydia Dietz embodied in this movie that just that quote alone was like, ah, I feel seen. (laughs) I feel so seen. Which I think is such a testament to her character, right? And just a lot of the character work that went into this movie. I think so many of the people that we get whether they're as simple as ghosts in the waiting room or as core and central figures as the entire Dietz family and then Adam and Barbara, they feel so authentic, even when we have extremely bizarre lines of dialogue. I mean, how authentic can you really say Beetlejuice is? And yet, man, he really does feel like a crusty perv, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He does. It's a, it's part of his... uh Strange charm. <laughs> you know, speaking of strange and unusual and ghosts, can I make a confession? Oh, sure. I'm scared. I think I am team kind of believes in ghosts. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's hear it. Let's please. Listen. Let's hear more. I re- Okay. Still like jury's out, but I heard some rather convincing shit. And I want to research more because I heard this like through... A couple YouTube videos, but I heard it from a podcast that my girlfriend was playing as I was like struggling to stay awake driving back from from Disney. Are you all familiar with the story of Teresita Bassa? Nope. Nope. She was murdered in the 70s. Okay. Right? So she was murdered. There aren't any leads. And at some point, one of her co-workers, and they're both from the Philippines, is channeling her. Like, her husband says that she's been, like, either on the phone talking to someone else and then suddenly shifts and starts speaking very differently or wakes up from sleep, a dead sleep, sits up and starts talking in a voice that's different, speaking to Tagalog, and is speaking as though she is Teresita Basa and she's asking her husband for help. Whoa. Please help me. Please help me. 
call the police, tell them who did this. She names her killer and then also says he has this specific jewelry from my apartment. Okay. And so she was like, okay, it's Alan Showery. And so the husband and wife, they're like, this is fucking weird. We're not going to the cops. This is bizarre. We want to forget the whole thing ever happens. But then she keeps having these experiences and they eventually go to the cops. So the cops are like, this is fucking bizarre. But they check it out. <laughs> yeah. And it was the guy. And he had all the jewelry. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? That is wild. Like, listen, I know that there are like some inconsistency, I think, in how the story has been reported over the years, but it was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, I think, in like the 80s or 90s. Okay. And like, I, I'm now obsessed and I want to like read everything I can because holy fucking shit, because this guy was convicted. Granted, he didn't end up serving the full term that he should have, mm. but this man went to jail. He was convicted. Yeah. All the evidence was there. And this all started because someone said, the ghost was talking. It was weird. Let's go, Mac. Go ahead. What do you have to say? <laughs> um, you know, this is it's a good ghost story, and obviously I would have to look it up to see It's a good ghost story. Why it's wrong, but <laughs> you know I'm gonna drop a link in the show notes specifically to this. And I believe the podcast was morbid that covered it. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. I'll drop a link to that and Mac, you can also look it up. But that shit seems weird. And, like, what they're saying is it's not like these people made it up for fame because they never wanted to do interviews about it. Like, the husband and wife, they never wanted to talk about it. They only went to the police, and that was it. Wild. Mm-hmm. That is wild. Wait, this was on a podcast that you were listening to? Yeah, a podcast. But then if you look up the name Teresita Bassa, it come, like the whole story comes up in several different ways. True. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's... You'll never know what the true, the, the, the actual truth is because at this point it's just a story, you know, that we can, we have a limited account of because I mean, who knows what the actual truth is. And in my book, it's more likely that details were there that, you know, needed to manifest themselves in some kind of useful way. And so this is the story they came up with to, to get this person caught. Who knows? Mac, I appreciate your copy and paste response to situations. <laughs> such as these when you don't have enough material to have a full rebuttal because sometimes you need that to kind of buy yourself time but if you think that i am not expecting a follow-up to this then you don't know me at all <laughs> you know what's what's more likely that this ghost manifested herself into this this coworker or that she suspected this person all along and didn't have a way of you know getting him caught I how? By the thin air? She just knew who this guy was? Here's the thing. She had barely known anybody at this job. So it wasn't like she, they were like lifelong friends or like they had always been in each other's circles forever. So I don't think it's, it's as clean cut as you would expect, Mac. But I'd be curious. Let's uh, see. Let's follow, let's follow up our next ghost movie. I'm out here. Team Binks. Team Binks. Listen, <laughs> all I'm saying is it was listening to that. Being obsessed with that story and then watching this movie, I'm like, fuck, man, these ghosts might be onto something. <laughs> That's wild. But, you know, aside from what, what Beetlejuice may have been like in his living days or what, what have you, but, you know, overall, just the character of Beetlejuice and like his, the way that he looked was just 
I can you imagine it any other way? I mean, it was just really perfect, right? We talked about like the the stripes, right, and that's iconic. But even just like the hair, the teeth, right, the makeup, that like whatever the hell is growing on his face, mold. if it's rotting flesh or mold or warts or whatever the hell. I mean, just the whole the whole vibe, the whole look of Beetlejuice. It's really man, just so perfect. I can't even imagine it another way. I'd just like to remind you that he kissed Gina D. Gina Davis with that mouth. He did. Disgusting. He did. Oh, my God. After he, like, was eating flies and cockroaches and, ooh. Fucking disgusting. Michael Keaton, bless your heart. I don't know how you can be so disgusting and still so fucking incredible. Yeah. And the fact that he isn't even fully shown head on until 45 minutes, approximately 45 (laughs) minutes into the film. Right? Isn't that nuts? It is wild. That is crazy. It's also weird to me, like, to imagine that he was young, when he did this, right? Yeah. Because he has like the energy of somebody who is much older. Yeah. Like he had hair back then, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. Batman had hair. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like look, when you look at him, he seems really old and really gross. <laughs> and he, he honestly, I think like completely pulled it off. Yeah. The sounds he was making, the voices that he was doing, just that must have been like so much work. It must have taken so much energy. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, even, oh God, man, even the, even that commercial that he does that's like playing on the old TV and then it goes into the commercial, that whole bit was, it was fucking hilarious. That, what does he say? That ironic line, he's like, get a free demon possession with every exorcism. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> that's too good. That's too good. He's incredible. Mm. He really is. I know the movie is about him, but I also just got to give a quick shout out to Adam and Barbara because, ooh, man, what stars... I completely forgot what a fucked up way this movie starts. And A, two weeks at home and perfect vacation. How funny that they end up stuck there for eternity. But when you think about the fact that there's these, there's this tension between them and Jane and the commentary on the family. And you never know, you know, obviously they don't have kids, but the dialogue makes it seem like they had tried. And who knows if it was the extent of just difficulties getting pregnant. Perhaps it was maybe that they lost a child. Maybe that uh, they can't conceive a child. So there's a lot of complexity there that doesn't even really get addressed. But either way, they have lives that are cut short. You know what I mean? It seems like unfinished business, a life unfulfilled. Not even just with their... Not even like they, there was something that they needed to do, but it was very clear that they wanted that together and they were going to do it within their own time. And they found their slice of happiness together and they were going to approach life as it unfolded. So I loved being able to see that they had a this ambition for their future, but then b a, a con, like an honest contentment and a happiness with each other and where they were. Yeah. But I also love then at the end seeing that they got to live through the family that they wanted with Lydia. That was an absolutely beautiful moment. And I think like when they have the, is it the name, is her name Grace, I think, that her and her daughter are always matching or whatever. (laughs) When she comes in and she says that line to Barbara, like, oh, this house is much too big for a couple that doesn't have kids, you know, like, man, fuck off, (laughs) you know, like, geez, especially now as an adult, right? Because as a kid, I don't understand or I don't, I don't, that connotation just like flies over my head, obviously. But as an adult, I'm thinking to myself, like, 
man, how shitty is it to hear something like that? Like, I can't have a house that has more than one room or whatever, or like a house, however the hell big it is, just because I don't have children or whatever the case may be. Like, that's just so silly. But I will say, now that we are talking about Barbara and Adam, actually two things. One is I love their chemistry. Right. And as I was rewatching it, you know, this time around, obviously, I was thinking to myself, man, I wonder, like, as a kid, what I must have thought about the two of them together. Like, did I think like, man, is like, what a, what a great example of like two, two people that like love each other, are there for each other. Cause you don't necessarily ever really see at all Barbara and Adam fighting with each other or like nothing negative. They're like a f- solid team. But I will say the second thing is they are the epitome of fuck around and find out, you know, <laughs> they're definitely high up there on that list <laughs> without a doubt because they're, they're out here like you were told explicitly. Not to call Beetlejuice. And the look on Barbara's face when she's like, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, you know, like, bitch, what are you doing? Juno couldn't have gotten any more clear. You just had a whole, she just gave a whole speech as to what this man is capable of to some extent. And you're like, ooh, let's see what happens. Well, you found out. Yeah. You sure did. That is a life that has been unmarred by fucking around and finding out. <laughs> Those who have not fucked around quite enough in their past to have found out already. <laughs> so this is the moment they find out. And that's pretty high stakes. Mm. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I, I did like, though, how Adam, he wasn't necessarily a jerk, but he was kind of a little bit of a jerk to the townspeople. <laughs> you know, when he's when he's going into the hardware shop and one question, is that his hardware shop or did he just like walk in and take it some stuff? It seems like it's his shop. <laughs> right. Because it's also named after him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. So he walks into the hardware shop then, his hardware shop, but he passes by the barber yeah. who just is like talking and he just like, whatever, dude. And just like ignores him, <laughs> goes about his business, comes back in, hops out the car and is like, peace, homie. And that was kind of hilarious. Dude. It was funny. But the dude was talking the whole time. It was so funny. It was really funny, but it also goes to show that, like, for whatever it is that he and Barbara have been through, they still thought they had their whole lives in front of them. You know what I mean? That's what those little moments show. He is there on vacation. He just wants to get back to his vacation, get back to his house and I think about so many of those moments, right? Granted, this barber may mean very little to him, right? So maybe if he knew this was his last day on Earth, maybe he wouldn't have stopped to fucking talk to this guy anyway. But the fact that he was in such a rush and so like, oh, all right, I'm just going to keep going and, and hey, have a good one. It just shows that he was he was hurrying to slow down. And it, I think it just shows like a really interesting point of like where they were in that moment right before they died that's an interesting thought yeah for sure before they got got by a dog yeah listen shout out to the dog with a higher body count than most killers we've seen in this franchise (laughs) and this year in some movies you know who had better chemistry than delia and charles it was delia and otho yes sean Mm. yes i have the same thing written down (laughs) that is hilarious yo shout out to the grand duo yep Otho and Delia are iconic besties. Yeah. Iconic. It was so good. Chemistry. Oh my gosh, rest in peace. I think he's such a great actor for this role. Like, oh, he did it so, so well. Yeah. And it's just like the energy that they 
play off of each other. Again, Catherine O'Hara, she just rocks this kind of persona when it comes to these characters that are like so pretentious right. and so ridiculous. Right. And then you have someone who's like a paranormal type of guy who's also just like here for the aesthetic and the vibe. Iconic. It was good. Completely iconic. And, and one of my favorite moments between the two of them is like when they're walking through the house, like marking up things and what they're going to do. And they <laughs> and they open up the closet and Barbara's like hanging there trying to scare them. They obviously don't see you. They push her out of the way. But like you think, you know, she's got that crazy face and she's hanging that they're scared because they get they like jump back and like, oh, but really, they're just horrified at how small the closet was. And it's just too good. <laughs> it's too good. I love it. I love it so, so, so freaking much. If they had, man, if like HGTV had the two of them, I would be on that channel all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Damn, now I'm just thinking of a similar episode of What We Do in the Shadows that was themed that way. Oh, really? Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. I love, the, I love the bit about Viridian, though. That was that was pretty brilliant. You know, for as great as Delia and Otho were, though, I just keep going back to something we mentioned a little while ago, which was the disconnect for me between how horribly mismatched Delia and Charles were and then and then Lydia as a family unit. Like it is what it is. It's a good movie. I'm not mad at it. This isn't like a serious thing. But the more I think about it, the more I really can buy Lydia as Delia's daughter and not Charles's daughter. I genuinely am like thinking back and looking up, look at pictures of Charles right now thinking, how the fuck did you make her? I just don't understand it. Maybe he has a type. Maybe that's what it is, but I just don't see it. He also kind of reminds me of the dad from Hellraiser. Oh, oh God. Wow. I'm telling you, man, it's the same, like the same vibe that i got seeing them move into the house it reminded me of the family moving into the house in hellraiser yeah like that's the vibe that i got and maybe that's just me being weird right now but i think that is probably the worst part of the movie for me just the disconnect between the family but that also is the bit right so if that's the worst part of the movie this movie is fucking amazing yeah i did not get larry cotton vibes from from the dad it's interesting because now that you say that, like him walking in and he's near the staircase, I can get the same kind of feel from when they walked into the house and they were near the staircase. So I, I, I pick it up now, now that you put it down. I, it's really hard to find a worse part. And I think the worst part for me has to do with some of the mentions of suicide. And I think when, when Lydia is writing her suicide note, yeah. They th- I mean thankfully they don't they don't treat it as a joke necessarily. They want to show that like she is obviously depressed and trying to express some stuff dealing with whatever's going on with her family and her her discontent. But you know there there's a couple couple mentions of, you know, being be, being like doomed to do that bureaucratic work, right? Right, yeah. And so it's I don't know. The the whole like my little accident thing with the slit wrists. It's 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 walking a fine line. I'll say that. So it's walking a fine line where it's like, yes, we're trying to make light of certain things, but we can't make too much light of, of that kind of a topic. And I think in some cases it could be, it could come across a little, a little too, little too light when we're talking about something like suicide, which I think is kind of, again, I mentioned it earlier about like a product or the excuse that some people would say is it's a product of its time, but like, is it, you know, like that's actually such a good point. 
maybe that's another example of like not acceptable, like not excusable. I should say that's a better way of putting it. Not excusable necessarily. It does walk definitely that fine line. It does. It does walk. I guess the fine line for sure. But I, I also think like they, they, yeah. And that's the point though. They're walking, they're walking that line. They're not really ever crossing it too far. Yeah. They make some little jabs with the civil servant when you commit suicide and, you know, they have the, you know, my accident. Um, but it, it doesn't feel like they're really trying to make a joke out of suicide. So I think. Yeah, they're walking the line. I can see that. It, it, it is hard. We're th- we're all thinking about things that are like, what's what's really, what are we going to say for worst parts of the movie? And it is really hard to pick worst parts of the movie. I, I think I think for me, we you know you mentioned it earlier, Banks, but like only getting fourteen minutes of Beetlejuice. I think I think you know that's my worst part. Like, give me some more Beetlejuice. Literally Beetlejuice from start to finish, two hours. Even two hours straight, I would just be like, give me a whole season. Well, yeah. I guess that's the animated series, but oh, gosh, he's just so fantastic. Sounds like you got a thirst that only some Beetlejuice can quench. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> I have to agree with you, Sean. I am really trying to think of a worse part. You know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to say that the worst part of this movie is that this episode is almost over and I can't keep raving about this movie. How about that? Like, I <laughs> I just, I love this movie so much. And although everyone's brought up, like, such good worst parts, I think we can all, obviously, we do agree that even despite all of that, this is just an iconic film. It's super incredible. You know, one thing I just realized right now, did we even talk, like, enough about the masterwork that is Danny Elfman's score in this movie? Like, again. Not at all. I'm telling you. Yeah, we didn't talk at all about it, yeah. We're almost done with this episode, and I'm like, no, let's keep going. I just, I love it so much. And I know I'm talking about the worst part, but maybe that's one of the best parts, is like how iconic not only just Harry Belafonte's two songs are, but just this score in general. You'll never not hear the intro of this movie and not instantly know that this is Beetlejuice that's about to be playing on your screen. It's just incredible. So, yeah, I love this movie. I love this movie. I can't believe it. We're, we're almost done talking about it. For some reason, you're making me really want to curl up right now. And rewatch it again? On a rainy afternoon, <laughs> watching this, Nightmare Before Christmas, and inexplicably, but also completely makes sense, Matilda. Oh. Ooh. Okay. okay. All right. That's a trifecta for sure. Look, I, I will never, ever say no to just doing from start to finish a Tim Burton binge. I literally just, I, I watch, rewatch Mars Attacks all the time for funsies. I rewatch this movie all the time for funsies. Nightmare for, I, I'm ridiculous. I went to Vegas, which I notoriously hate just because it's not my vibe, guys. If you're from Vegas, like nothing against you, but I just, it's not, the city's not my vibe. However, Tim Burton had an exhibition there and I literally paid tickets and I, planned my trip with my friends to be able to go and dress up in a Beetlejuice-esque outfit just so I could take a picture of a lot of his stuff from the set. Like, love it. So if you think that I am incapable of rewatching this movie, (laughs) you just haven't spoken to me in a few weeks, maybe. Like, I will will watch this movie again and again, 100%. I feel like this movie is your palate cleanser. It's absolutely my palate cleanser. Absolutely. 
I, I mean, the thing is, like, this movie, like I mentioned it earlier in my scoring, it's just like one that you can have in the background. You don't even need to like finish the whole movie entirely, you know, just to hear the music alone or some of the witty banter is still just enough to like pick up your mood when you're cleaning the house or doing something, you know, casually as well. It's just one of those movies. So for sure. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the score and, and Danny Elfman's just masterwork but like you hear it and you can you it's not that you picture the movie right it's that you feel the feeling of watching the movie when you hear it and i think that just shows how effective it is that it is like just built into our blood now that we have seen it several times or that we grew up with it or whatever it is it's just like part of you now and so yeah is it rewatchable like of course it is this is this is something where you know these days you get sick and you're sick for a week or two weeks you know maybe covid or something like that or the flu and you watch a bunch of crap on streaming services things that they just like pump out right instead of doing that you know i i i would prefer to read a book but if i'm going to watch something i'd rather watch something that like i don't know makes you feel good a little bit and i think this belongs on that list this is one of those things where when you're feeling down whether it's emotionally or just like physically like crap like Get rid of the streaming crap that, you know, you don't even remember it a year and watch some stuff like this. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this movie, I mean, you all said it best. I mean, the movie has stood the test of time. It has a ton of rewatch value. As you heard earlier, I'm still getting little things out of it with every new watch. So I'm still having fun with this movie. It is, like I said before, in my October lineup, so I watch it every year. I'll probably continue to watch this movie, if nothing less than once a year. And I really cannot wait to watch this one back-to-back with the upcoming sequel. So that's what I'm looking forward to, 100%. I love that my birthday's tomorrow and we're doing this episode and then literally next year (laughs) this movie comes out, (laughs) The the sequel comes out. Is it the day before? Yeah, it's the day before your birthday. Look at us. Yeah, amazing. Beetlejuice Virgo energy. So good. Mm, I love that for you. And honestly, I'm so stoked that this movie has fared so well with rewatchability. I can't wait to continue enjoying it and, you know, show it to my kids one day. But for now, there you have it, folks. Beetlejuice from 1988 has earned a universal slash. Now, we've certainly had a robust discussion here, but it doesn't end here by any means. We want to know what you think. Do you too consider yourself strange and unusual? Let us know. You heard earlier the benefits of joining us in our Discord, so you can join us and talk about this movie on there. You can click the link in our show notes to sign up. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, consider joining our New Blood Drive and becoming a member of the family. Check the link in our show notes or visit hackerslash.live slash support to enjoy more of the show with early access, extended episodes, bonus content, and live shows. We'll see you next time, folks. And remember, never trust the living. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Okay, listen. Did the world need plans for Beetlejuice 2? Maybe. Maybe not. Who's to say, really? But I think there is no more perfect pairing than a Tim Burton film with Jenna Ortega and Michael Keaton. This is true. I mean, this is true. I think I I have high hopes for this one, just based off of bringing like what we know as original cast members back, right? And then adding Jenna Ortega into the mix, I think is it's set up to be potentially a really cool film. I'm seeing nothing but upside. Yeah, I know. I know. And I hear you. And I hear you. And there was, there's been like, you know, the, the thing is, is that there's been a couple or a handful of these iconic films from way back in the day. 
that just never had a sequel. And then the sequel gets announced and they're like, yeah, we're bringing back the original cast and it's going to be dope. And then like you watch it and you're like, yeah. Which ones? Were you talking about Little Mermaid 2? No. Yeah. We're talking about Lion King's 2, Simba's Pride? No. No. Nowhere near. Because that was a fucking hit. No, those. that's not the example he's giving. He's definitely <laughs> talking about Hocus Pocus 2. That's the first thing that came to mind. I still haven't watched it. Oh, well, I'm here to tell you, like, it's okay but it's the thing is that what do you expect like the magic of some of these movies is at the time that they were aired like you know what i'm saying and then just going and remaking it or doing the sequel again 30 years later or in this case it'll be 36 years later just kind of like i don't know i'm nervous guys i'm I'm just so you can't tamper with something that's gold you know just leave it leave it alone sometimes however i, I can't believe that's coming from me because i just want to relive this movie every single time in any which way i can and jenna ortega of course i love but i don't know i gotta say i'm nervous okay i, I yes i love her but d- is she gonna be in everything horror related going forward is, you know is it when it's when it's time for the next horror reboot or sequel they're gonna be like well obviously she's gonna play freddy krueger because she's hot right now so naturally hold on hold on i think that's unfair i think she has hit a streak of some great things we know that she's in scream she was in X, and she was then in Wednesday. What's the problem? Um, She's also been a child actor for however fucking long, so, you know. If you're if we're talking about her filmography, let's get the filmography, and that is in <laughs> that. So, but in terms of, like, modern-day Jenna Ortega. Modern-day Jenna Ortega. She was also in You. Yeah, You, okay, horror-ish, adjacent. Yeah, more thriller Close than enough. anything. But my point is... What she's not in, Mia Goth is in. So really, we're just split it 50-50. And then sometimes (laughs) they overlap. Well, and the casting is not complete for this movie. So who knows? By the time that this movie comes out, Mia Goth might actually be an extra. (laughs) So Delia Dietz, baby. You never know. (laughs) No, that's Catherine O'Hara, who is confirmed. She's coming back, so that's good. David. That is true. I'm not I'm not so much necessarily worried about Jenna Ortega being in it, because I think it kind of fits. But and you know what? Like I, I actually have no doubt that Michael Keaton can reprise his role because man, I just think he does really well in most things that he does. So I'm I'm not really worried about that. I'm I'm more so worried about like how's it gonna look? What's the story gonna be? Like one of the things that really made Beetlejuice special was the low budget effects, which, you know, like, and it just worked. It just worked, right? So now you got all this new technology. Are they going to make it look like more like visually real and all these things? Is it going to take away? Is it going to be a different tone? Is it, how's that going to feel? You know what I mean? I think given the team behind it, I think they're going to handle it with some reverence and just do some things nicely. Like, I don't think it's going to be the jarring jump. From the original Star Wars trilogy to the prequel series. I don't think it's going to be like that. That's a very, that's very kind of you. So much hope and optimism. Good for you. As long as they just keep away anyone on Disney's team who's been responsible for recent sequels and reboots. Yeah. Okay. Just, they need to take a break for a little bit and work on some new stuff. And, you know, I think this, this obviously could be a lot of fun. And I think that's going to be the determination of whether or not it's good. Is it a lot of fun? Because if it's like, we're just going to constantly punch you in the nostalgia feels, uh, you know, it's not enough. You know, we need a little bit more. It needs to be fun all on its own. I think if it's a standalone movie, obviously related to the first one, obviously, but, but if it, if it's able to stand on its own, then I think it'll be successful in my eyes. I just think there's enough of the past coming through. 
You know what I mean? Like, granted, we have Tim Burton returning. We have Michael Keaton returning. We have Winona Ryder, <laughs> Winona Ryder returning. I feel like even if they stretch in some new directions, I feel like the core soul of it is going to be intact. Yeah, I see. So I, I, that's what I, I'm hoping. I hope so. And, and, you know, I know Binks, you said Hocus Pocus 2. Obviously, that's, that's one. I do have to, I've only seen that one once. So I do have to give that another try because I do it, you know, when Hocus Pocus first came out, it wasn't very popular. It's kind of dud. And then it just became popular. But I don't think the second one holds up by any means, anyways. But maybe it'll get better as I watch it a second, maybe third time. I don't know. I'm just giving, I got to give it, you know, it's fair shake. But the other two movies outside of, you know, the horror-esque, you know, vibe that come to mind immediately where this happened and it just kind of like became a dud was Dumb and Dumber 2. Just wasn't great. And Super Troopers 2. Also, not that great. Didn't even realize Super Troopers 2 was a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. Right over my head. But can we talk about Ghostbusters? Uh, Uh, Can we also talk about Balto 2 Wolf Quest? What? What? <laughs> what is that? What did you just say? Balto <laughs> 2, Wolf Quest. Oh, oh my. Oh, God. Man, y'all are missing me with these fucking... Mark Hamill was in this sequel, and I thought it was going to be great. Interesting. But then it just wasn't. Listen, it had a great cast. You had Jody Benson, who played Ariel. You had Lacey Chabert. You had Mark Hamill. It seems like a recipe for greatness, and yet none of you know what movie I'm talking about. So here we are. I mean... I think we know of Balto, but yeah, 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 like great American he- hero Balto. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just you know, there's there's it could go it could go anyway. I I'm hopeful for Michael Keaton because I think there was a while where like, he was great. Yeah, and then he was he was kind of there, and now he's kind of great again. And yeah. so like that makes me really hopeful. Winona Ryder has been great for such a long time that. I'm, I'm just stoked, you know, I'm stoked about that as well. Like watching her in Stranger Things, I was like, girl, just give me more movies. I'm here for it. Well, when I could talk about Winona Ryder for an eternity. It's like one of my like idols in life. So aside from her stint of, you know, being a thief, but that was unfortunate. <laughs> aside from that, though, I think she's just remarkable, incredible. I can't praise her enough. I will say talking about Michael Keaton, I think there was like an interview years ago where he said that it, he, first of all, this is his favorite movie that he's ever done is Beetlejuice. And that if he were to ever do a sequel of one of his movies, it would be Beetlejuice. So I think that that's really like super nice and great to see that full circle. Also, Willem Dafoe is casted for this film. I saw that. I saw that. He's going to be, I think, just like one of the, I think like ghosts or something like that. They haven't really specified, I don't think, um, or like a security guard per se, but that's going to be really fun. Catherine O'Hara is back, which is necessary. Absolutely necessary. We won't get to see Otho, though. Oh, I know. Rest in peace. Glenn Shaddix. Yeah. But, well, and I don't even think that they're bringing, or at least it hasn't been said, but Jeffrey Jones, Lydia's dad, isn't in it. But I guess, I don't know how that would have been played out. But yeah, I think they haven't released too much of the cast yet. So we'll see. I'm assuming no Alec Baldwin, you know? Yeah, I would yeah. also assume no Alec. But but you know what? It makes sense not to bring back, well, for obvious reasons, Alec Baldwin or honestly Gina Davis because in some ways like... You couldn't. Yeah, like you I would... You couldn't because they have to, they can't age. They're 
they're dead. And right. how are you going to do that? Just some shitty CGI right. that no one wants to see? <laughs> no, they had to write it off as like, we're going to make ourselves look older since it's been so much longer. Right. Just for you, because that's how movies work. <laughs> yeah. And although, like, technically, they would still be living in that house because they've got 125, I think, years there. I would prefer that they just like find a way to explain as to why they're not there and like casual, like super quick and casual and like put a bow on that than doing a special effects thing and de-aging them. And then again, like you're saying, Sean, it kind of loses that charm and just it's not worth it. Now, what's going to happen is, is she's Lydia's going to see them in the rearview mirror of her car. Oh, and then, and then maybe some away. other mirrors. Oh, that's what, you know, that's what's going to happen. And then a glass case containing her original like wedding dress to Beetlejuice. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nice. Nice. Force ghost. Gina so, yes. and Alec Baldwin. Freaking yeah. Scream 7. Scream, Scream 7. <laughs> They're going to rip them straight from Beetlejuice 1988 and just insert them into this movie. <laughs> it's going to be great. I- I refuse. Okay, well, you you hinted at something there, Mac, right? So, like, what do we think the plot is going to be? Oh, God. Well, okay, Jenna Ortega is playing Lydia's daughter. Right. Which I'm like, damn, who is Lydia's husband or, like, partner or the father of Jenna Ortega because... Beetlejuice? Uh, oh. <laughs> oh Throw in the curveball. Throw in the curveball. I think someone else's cast is Bride of Beetlejuice. Oh, that's oh, true. That's You're right. right. You're right. You're right. You're right. That is true. Well, there goes that. Well, you never know. I hope that he's not her father. I would <laughs> well, hope. Okay. I, I hope so, too. I'm just throwing a, a curveball out there. But. Yikes. So maybe it's that, like, I don't know. Is she... The thing is, Jenna Ortega is at an age where we're not necessarily sure what age her character would be playing. Like, assuming that she's in high school, because Jenna Ortega, Ortega typically plays high schoolers, yet she's, I think, like 19, 20 at this point, may even be 21, maybe even older, but, you know, around that range where maybe she's just, like, out of college. Is she moving back to this old house with her mom and, like, get caught gets caught up in this ghost stuff? I would assume that it has to be a scenario where there are ghosts again, like, you know, haunting them, but it would yeah. be the, from the perspective of Lydia at this point, because obviously Beetlejuice is from the perspective of of adam and barbara so i don't know what if lydia is dead mm. what if lydia is the ghost hey whoa i hope not i mean it could oh my be good. god how devastating i know it could be good it could be good i wasn't ready for that but but when you when you watch beetlejuice as well like you don't want to see alec baldwin and gina davis die you they're like such nice characters yeah. yeah so maybe they're gonna pull the you know the first like 10 minutes is just like her going out in some completely silly way it's a requel what are the rules of the requel? We echo, we rhyme with the first one. Okay. Someone's going to die. The dog is going to come back and kill someone. <laughs> well, yeah, there has to, somebody, yeah, there's got to be some death. I was going to spoil Hocus Pocus too. Oh, God. Um, no, don't do it. Okay. You know what? Fine. I guess, I guess we can kind of do that requel remake, but this is the, this is what I'm talking about though. This is where I get nervous because I don't want you to redo the original movie because you never can right. and you never should. I want to, if you're going to do a sequel to something, give me something new, like a new scenario, right? Like, yeah. I think we're going to be a-okay because once again, it's Tim Burton doing it. It's not yeah, like true. Radio Silence who loved Wes Craven and we had two filmmakers from Radio Silence like redoing 
scream to pay yeah. honor and pay tribute. Tim Burton's not over here clapping his own back, going to fucking pay tribute to himself. He's just going to continue the fanfare. But here's the thing. M- Michael McDowell is not the person that wrote this script, though. Mm-hmm. It is a new person that wrote this story in the script. So I agree that luckily it is still Tim Burton. But at the end of the day, it's not like Tim Burton wrote Beetlejuice, right? So like, I'm that's what has me nervous is like, he, he may have the direction. I hope if anything, Tim Burton, because he was like, very involved in the process with Michael McDowell and adapting it and seeing it go through, like, I hope Tim Burton will be able to like, really get in the writer's room and like, you know, make sure that we don't get what Disney's been doing lately with these things. Because again, yeah. I'm not, I, I said it earlier, like, Hocus Pocus 2 is the biggest like example that I can give because it's me we're talking about. I love Hocus Pocus, but, and I love Beetlejuice. I just was kind of disappointed with the sequel for Hocus Pocus. And I would hate that this happens to me again. But if, I mean, I'll live, right? Like it's not, it's not like they're out there trying to please me, but they should. I think they are (laughs) trying to please you specifically. They had the ability in the, in the, in the actual original Beetlejuice to make a movie that children love and adults can also love like there's like there's different layers right of, yeah. of humor and of and everything so i'm hopeful they can do that this time i'm hopeful like kids can watch it and like have a fun time and that adults of our age and even older can watch it and be like oh that was a that was a good time you know because if it's only one or the other if it's just for nostalgia just for adults that's going to be a wasted opportunity but if it's just like silly for kids that's not the vibe. I hope it's got to be the healthy balance. Yeah, I don't. I'm. If anything, I'm hopeful that that won't be the case. I think they'll definitely have a good balance because that's why they're doing these sequels. Though, to, to some extent, they are catering to us now that our generation has children, or like you know, is kind of like reliving our youth in this like time period that we're in in our lives. So they have to cater to both. So I, I'm sure that that will be the case, and and that's a big part of. I would assume a big part of why Jenna Ortega is also being casted because Jenna Ortega is the youth's champion, you know, like especially riding off of Wednesday. So, well, I hope it's better than Fern Gully 2, The Magical Rescue. <laughs> you keep naming these sequels, bro. <laughs> Listen, Gosh. you got another one on, on your sleeve? Yeah, Go the ahead. secret of Nim 2, To Me To The Rescue. Oh, my. <laughs> What is happening? Bro, Secret of oh. M2, Jimmy to the Rescue is a great movie. It's also a great sequel. No, it doesn't get the fucking credit it deserves. I, for one, am optimistic. Okay. All when right. did these, what was the gap of, you know what, don't even answer this. Never mind. We'll do this another time. Like, what is the gap of time between one and two that you are naming these sequels off the cuff? Fern Gully. Hold on. Fern Gully came out in 1992. Uh-huh. And Fern Gully 2, 1998. No, doesn't count, Chris. Secret? We're talking yeah. 36 oh, years him. of a difference. And you're out here giving me four years difference? 1982, Secret of Nim 2, 1998. <laughs> I am still optimistic. Take a lap. Wow. <laughs> I'll take as many fucking laps as I want. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, movies with sequels after 30 years. Let's see what Google comes up with. You know what? I got another sequel for you, but it's a TV show. Sex in the City also has a sequel. Not it, friends. Not it. You ready for this? Go ahead. Top Gun. Oh, okay. Masterpiece. Yeah, that is a good example. Oh, no. That's a really good one. Damn, that movie was really good. Okay. You know what? Yeah. Got him. That's I'm it. I'm done now. Ladies and gentlemen. You know, it, you know what it is, though? 
in, in Top Gun, obviously there's nods, you know, we've got right. Val Kilmer coming back when they didn't have to, they really wanted him involved. That's great. Right. But they didn't spend the entire time going, look at us. We're pointing at Top Gun one. Look at us. We remember that you remember, right? They just were like, let's just make a really freaking entertaining movie. And if they do that here, if they're like, let's keep it simple, make a really fun movie, have some great times. I think they'll be successful. You know, they can do that. They can have that same magic, man. Couldn't agree more. Wow, that's it, Chris. You named Balto 2 and all these other freaking movies when you could have just said Top Gun Maverick and Case Closed. Listen, I had to work up to it, you know? Fern Gully. I also what? wanted to name movies I like versus movies I haven't even seen yet. You haven't seen Top I, I don't Maverick? ever want to fucking watch Top Gun. I live Top Gun. No, thank you. Oh, I guess that's that's a very good point. <laughs> I live Top Gun. <laughs> I, live to- I live Top Gun. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am the top That's what Chris hears when she wakes up. I'm haunted, really. I hope not. Trauma. Not the flight ops. That was a good time. But listen, Binks, you're wearing a Beetlejuice cardigan. Can you show us? Yeah, I got the logo. Don't screen grab it. It's hacker math, baby. I was going to say, hey, you know math. That's great. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> really only sometimes. Wait, Sean and Binks, have you met in person yet? No. No, but I mean, we are tomorrow, Chris. That's <laughs> yeah, true. but I mean, it's like, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just a sudden realization that I just had. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Binks, I feel like, is going to disown me right now. I mean, it seems like like a miss. Like, uh, how could you? How could you just not throw this on at some point since your childhood? Have you know? I, I think it. I, I, I don't. I'm so. I'm. I'm genuinely speechless. <laughs> speechless. I'm genuinely speechless. Like this movie is sometimes just on the TV. Like I turn on the TV and all of a sudden it's like there. I. I don't understand. I don't manifest things in that way. I guess. Now it's too late. Now I'm never watching it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay, not never watching it, but like give it like two more years. I'll watch it when like a kid needs to say goodbye to me. That's when I'll watch Coco. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize Lydia Dietz joined the Google Meet. Nice. <laughs> you know, I thought you said that you yourself were strange and unusual. Oh, no, I am Lydia Dietz, but like you took it to the next level. You were the Jenna Ortega Lydia Dietz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck my life. Hey, we're getting better. You got Jenna Ortega? I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Cut it out. Oh, my goodness. You know, the real plot twist would have been Sean saying, hey, this is a great movie, but it's not a fucking horror movie. (laughs) I think I would have jumped through the screen. And lost. I should have started style. that way. I should have just. I should have started <laughs> off that with that tone. Banks is about to, to tell your ass you have seven days left. <laughs> you got, I was gonna go full Samara. It was gonna get. It was gonna get serious. I want to. I want to know. Was Beetlejuice a, a, a living being that became a ghost? Yeah. And if so, what was he like? You know, as like what was he like being? when he was alive? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, there's mention of him being around for, like, a millennia, right? Like, he's been around for a long time. Wasn't he? Well, there was a little bit of backstory. I think Juno was telling Barbara and Adam that he used to be Juno's assistant. Mm, And then he was, like, a little too nuts and doing his own thing and, like, wreaking havoc on his own so that they kind of just, like, 
ostracized him essentially yeah right but at the same time like he also we don't necessarily see it directly but he reveals what his true face looks like and it's like doesn't seem very human to me from the back (laughs) so yeah i mean hey i don't know i mean he also said he lived it through the black plague so we know he goes that far back for sure, right? Like, he's he's seen some shit. That's true. He's been around. He's been around. I don't know what he would have been like when he was actually alive. We would have to know. Maybe we'll get some more in a, in this in this sequel that is going to happen, right? Ooh. So I don't know. Maybe some more backstory. Giving the crossover where it's Beetlejuice meets the Volturi and the Cullen family. Mm, <laughs> oh, gosh. Man, okay. All right. Well, you never know. You never know little mashup <laughs> binks is so fucking done with me i can't believe i'm gonna say this that sounds like a terrible idea of course it does <laughs> that's horrible <laughs> imagine arlo's laugh and michael keaton as beetlejuice just trying to recreate it <laughs> god absolutely oh, not goodness i do wonder though like other ghosts you know, in, in other movies, like how would they fare against Beetlejuice with, with the amount of experience he has? You know, would Candyman stand a chance? In the battle yeah, of creatures who you say their name three times and they show up. Right. Hmm. How about Freddy? Would Freddy stand a chance against Beetlejuice? I think that both Freddy and Beetlejuice would be best friends, kicking it back with a cold beer. I could see that. I could see that. I think I think Beetlejuice would judge Freddy, though, for his inclinations. Um, you think so? You think so? I think... Beetlejuice would have been egging him on the entire time. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's the big yikes for the evening. <laughs> Actually, you know what? <laughs> Beetlejuice, he is kind of, a, he is, I mean, obviously he's pervy, but like Lydia is how old in this film? Uh, so yeah, you know, Beetlejuice and Freddy got a lot in common. They, mm. I think it's not explicitly said how old Lydia is, but I, it's presumed that she's, well, she's in school, right? So she's probably about like 16, 17 or something like that. Right, right. Anywhere between like 15 to 17. There you have it. Yikes. Dirty boy. Yikes. (laughs) Did you say dirty boy? Jesus (laughs) Christ, Mac. (laughs) It's all fun and games until you get there, huh? Uh, 